0: This evening's reading is Exodus chapter 16, which you'll find on page 73 of your church Bible. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. "'The people are to go out each day "'and gather enough for that day. "'In this way, I will test them "'and see whether they will follow my instructions. "'On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, "'and that is to be twice as much "'as they gather on the other days. "'So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, "'In the evening you will know "'that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt.' And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread in the morning, because he's heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord." Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he's heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept For the generations to come, as the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law, that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for forty years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one tenth of an ephah. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Don't worry, uh, you're in safe hands. Uh, They can be great words to hear, can't they? Especially, uh, perhaps, as the anaesthetist is about to prepare you to go under the knife, for example. Uh, Words of reassurance that the person in whose hands you trust your life is dependable and reliable and has a proven track record. Perhaps slightly less uh, likely, imagine taking part in the the Paris-Dakar rally race of uh, grueling endurance and danger. Apparently, many contestants have died in that race over the years, and discovering that your uh, co-driver is none other than uh, Lewis Hamilton. Uh, I guess it would be better than getting into a car with someone sort of overlooking the sort of highway code or reading a book called Driving for Dummies. Well, we're back in Exodus this evening, and the story so far, well, God has uh, liberated his people from, from slavery. And now under God's leading, they find themselves in the desert, uh, heading towards Canaan, uh, towards home. And as we will discover, this period in the desert will last 40 years. And it will be a period of of testing uh, and teaching. It's going to be God's school, if you like, uh, to prepare the Israelites for the day when they finally take possession uh, of the promised land. And this evening, I think we'll see that the big uh, lesson he wants to grasp, uh, wants his people to grasp, is that if they will but trust him and depend on him, they will quickly realize they are in the safest hands possible. And what was true of the Israelites back in uh, Exodus 16 is also true, I think, for us. If we're God's people, uh, if we are followers of Jesus, his disciples, this evening, we are in the safest possible hands And we can trust him for every and absolutely every situation and for all of our needs. That's the big thing I think I wanted to see this evening uh, from this chapter. Maybe it's a timely encouragement for us, not least perhaps as we're very conscious of of challenges that are facing us. Uh, The challenges of a a cost of living squeeze and just the worry perhaps of making ends meet. Uh, The challenges, uncertainties of... uh, face us as church as we uh, ponder the practical implications of leaders who uh, want to take us away from the clear teaching of Scripture. But as well as showing us what God is like and why we can trust him, uh, I think we'll also find in these verses uh, uh, God putting a spotlight on us. Indeed, uh, as we look at the response of God's people to his leading, his provision, I suspect we'll see a lot of ourselves in this chapter too. Let's pray as we come to it and seek God's uh, leading as we work our way through it. Father, we thank you for your word that reveals uh, who you are, that we might both know you uh, and trust you in every situation at all times. So please use uh, this chapter to to radically, as it were, rewire our hearts uh, from grumbling and doubting ones to, to grateful, trusting ones we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want, I think, a summary of this uh, chapter, I think there are two big realities that are in view. Uh, First of all, a God who provides generously and people who grumble persistently. And I want to unpack this uh, chapter just under four headings. Let's look first at ungrateful grumblers ungrateful grumblers. Look down at verses 1 and 2. The whole Israelite community uh, come to the desert of Sin, uh, desert of Sinai, just a a couple of months after their deliverance from Egypt. And there in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And what were they saying, verse 3? If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Uh, I admit I'm a bit of a glass half empty person But do you hear these guys? We were better off in Egypt. That word grumble appears, I think, seven times in this one chapter. Uh, I just note a couple of things about this uh, grumbling. Uh, First of all, it's a grumbling that has spread right across the whole community. Right across the whole community. Every part of it is Grumbling. And notice, too, that their grumbling is based, I think, on a complete delusion. Look down at verse 3. If only we had died in the Lord's hands uh, in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. I want to say, really? Really? It wasn't so long ago that their firstborn sons were being thrown into the Nile. They were being beaten for not delivering enough bricks uh, for the quota that Pharaoh uh, wanted for his latest pyramid. But now they kind of talk about those days as if they were the good old days and make it sound more like a summer vacation than miserable slavery that it was. And perhaps most astonishingly, not only was their grumbling grumbling shocking in the light of the misery they had previously experienced, but it just completely ignored the incredible rescue that they had just experienced. But they still grumble, don't they? They still complain. They even suggest it would have been better off if they'd never been rescued from Egypt in the first place. And you notice too that although this grumbling is directed against Moses and Aaron, it's very clear ultimately that it's directed against God. And Moses makes that very clear down in verse seven. He, that's the Lord, has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? And then again in verse eight, you're not grumbling against us, declares Moses, but against God. And that is, I think, what, what makes this crumbling so serious. I mean, in, in light of all that the Lord had done for them, they had been slaves on the most brutal of regimes, and there was literally, literally nothing they could do uh, to change things. But God had intervened. He'd acted powerfully to bring uh, deliverance and freedom for them. And if that weren't enough, even since leaving Egypt... God already, as it were, set out his stall to, to reveal himself as a great provider. If you could cha- just look back to one chapter, you'll see that uh, the, the people are struggling struggling to find drinking water. And as Moses and the people cry out, God God provides, miraculously turning bitter, undrinkable water into good, life-sustaining water. Just how quick people move here uh, from gratitude to grumbling. How quickly they turn against God. Well, back in chapter 6, we heard that God had heard the groaning of the Israelites in Egypt, and he had compassion on them. But now look at what God says in verse 12. I've heard the grumbling, not the groaning, the grumbling of the Israelites. Not the songs of thankfulness and gratitude, or even, even the cries for help. As they encounter new challenges, but only the grumbling of God's people, from groaning to grumbling. Well, as we encounter this in this chapter, and perhaps we shake our heads in disbelief, of course, the reality is we are capable of just the same thing. How often I sing on a Sunday about God's unfailing love, that He's that faithful God, but during the week I grumble. Perhaps it's the pressures of work. Or maybe I'm grumbling about what others say about me. Grumbling about what others have that I think I ought to have. And we say, me, well, everyone grumbles. And we Brits are especially good, I think, at grumbling. Um, If there was a medal for it, we would probably be on the podium every time. But for Christians to grumble, that's tragic, because it's a sign, I think, of deep ingratitude. And while we might not think we're directing it against God, ultimately we are. See, when we grumble, we ultimately say, don't we, uh, that God is failing to look after me in the way that he should. Now, it's worth saying, it's not grumbling to, to cry out to God when we are in difficult situations. It's not grumbling, I think, to, to share with others the difficulties that we're experiencing as we acknowledge our need of help. those are good things those are are, in one sense an expression of trust but grumbling is when we refuse to see what God has done just focusing on the negatives and that deep conviction that God is not providing for us in the way we think he should And, and when times are tough and I think they will become increasingly tough for us perhaps economically but certainly spiritually it'll be easy won't it to grumble And I think Exodus reminds us that if that grumbling goes unchecked, not only will it spread among us, but ultimately it will harden our hearts towards God. Indeed, we've discovered in this this book that what starts off as grumbling ultimately means people turn away from God to serve other things. See, grumbling blinds us to to God's blessings, and it it makes it harder for us to trust his provision. So ungrateful grumblers... But how does God respond? Actually, God responds, doesn't he, in remarkable patience and kindness in this chapter. That's the next big truth I wanted to see in our passage. A gracious God who generously provides. I look down at verse 4 and hear uh, God's words. So they grumble. What's God going to do? Verse 4, I'm going to rain down fire and burn these people up and put an end to their grumbling once and for all. That's his response. No, he says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. is that astonishing? God doesn't even mention their crumbling. Instead, he wants them to see his, his grace. He simply provides for them. And he does so fully and abundantly. And in the details, you see God, didn't are providing protein in the quail, which I gather is a very posh version of chicken. It's the kind of thing you get served up at some celebrity chef restaurant. Apparently, in the ancient Near East, it was something of a delicacy. And then there's carbs, isn't there, too? Uh, This bread that gets called manna, which simply means, what is that? It's like Watsits, but it's only a lot healthier (laughs) and a lot more nutritious. Tastes like honey. Uh, Sounds glorious. I was thinking, even as I was sitting there listening to this, the reading, oh, I'm getting a bit hungry. And before we're done, we'll see that this gift of manna had another purpose, not just to, to provide uh, for the people in the desert, but actually, we'll see, to point us to a greater provision, uh, a more wonderful provision uh, for God's people and their needs. Uh, and just look at the way in God provides. Not only is it uh, abundant, it is provided, isn't it, faithfully and consistently. Just look down at verse 35, the very end of the chapter. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years, until they came to a land that was settled, until they reached the border of Canaan. When I mean, God promises to provide, he does that consistently, uh, all the way through. No gaps here, no missing days when people have to go without. But notice too that this provision is not only designed to, to fill the bellies of God, God's people, it is to reveal something about their God. See, as God promises to provide, you spot what God says at the end of verse 12. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And when we say that word Lord in capitals, we are reminded that it's God's covenant name, Yahweh, which if you remember, literally means I am who I am. other words, I think when God says he's gonna provide, you know that he's gonna do that because that is who he is. That is who he is. That's consistent with his character, his being. God is revealing himself. And we see he's a God who's uh, compassionate, who hears the cries of his people. He's a God who rescues, he's a God who judges. And here I think we see God revealing himself as he is, as that great provider. And again, if you're a Christian this evening, isn't it wonderful, isn't it reassuring to know that this isn't just something God does as a one-off? It's a reflection of who he is. It's part of his nature, part of his essence. What makes him God? Indeed, you could say it would be unthinkable, inconceivable that he wouldn't provide for his people. It would be a denial of who he is. How reassuring this evening. And uh, not least as we face economic uncertainty, as we wonder about the future of our denomination, possible cost of staying faithful to God. Gracious God who generously and faithfully provides. But third, notice too, it's a provision that God gives that does challenge and grow faith. God does provide, but that uh, provision provides something of a test, I think, for God's people. Look down at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. That is to be twice as much as they gather on other days. Well, provision does come, doesn't it, with very clear instructions. Uh, God tells them just to collect enough for each day because God will provide one day at a time. And this provision will provide a test, a test to see whether they will ultimately trust God and demonstrate that trust in obedience to His words. And it seems like they begin well. Verse seventeen: uh, The Israelites did as they were told. Uh, some gathered much, some little. But there, yes, there was some variation in what people collected. But God arranged it somehow. That it was always just right, the exact amount that they would need um, to have their needs met. But God was very clear too, wasn't it? Nothing that was collected was to be anything other than for the day they collected it on. They weren't to collect enough that manna for the next day, except for on one occasion. But it's clear, isn't it, that some of these people fail the test. They deliberately ignore God's very clear instructions. Uh, so some collected extra for the following day in spite of what God said. Just imagine the kind of conversation going on in a tent Perhaps Reuben says to his wife, Rachel, okay, God has provided for us today, but can we be sure that he'll provide for us tomorrow? You only have his words. Uh, so Reuben takes matters into his own hands. He collects extra for the next day, keeps some back just in case. God doesn't come through in his promise. But next morning, there's a terrible stink, isn't there, in the tent? Maggots all over the place. And Rachel is screaming for Reuben to remove it from the tent. And over breakfast, perhaps, uh, Reuben acknowledges we should have trusted God. We should have a confidence in his promise. So God not only tests uh, and trains, he also encourages, doesn't he, his people to to trust his word and to keep his commands. And the same thing happens, doesn't it, with this idea of the seventh day. So on the sixth day, they they, they collect double because there won't be any manna on the seventh day. But again, in spite of clear instruction, uh, some fail to listen. They don't collect extra on the sixth day. They go out on the seventh, and what do they find? Wow, nothing, just as God had said, the ground bare. And not surprising, God laments, doesn't he, their lack of faith, their disobedience. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? How long will you take to learn to trust me, that I know best, that I do things for your good? How long will it take to learn to do what I say? I suppose God could have supplied, couldn't he, the the people uh, on one big deluge of manner, perhaps the first day of the month or the first day of the year, that sort of last the whole time. But I guess the temptation would be to trust God for that one day and then to stop the rest. You could have argued, couldn't you, that God could have made it easier in some way if he provided slightly differently. But as we see, God's got bigger plans than simply filling the bellies of these people. He wants them to grow in their faith and their trust. Of course, I think God does the same thing, doesn't he, in our own lives. Perhaps at this very moment, he's doing that as he takes us through difficulties or trials. As we experience need, need. He wants to teach us to, to trust him and obey him day by day. And just like for those in the desert, so uh, God encourages us to pray for our daily bread. Promises that, our, that his resources he provides are, are sufficient for today. And even as he provides, he wants us to, to learn and be confident that he will always give us enough um, for today. Maybe you're a person who's just a bit prone to worry. Often we, do, we look ahead, don't we? Um, perhaps even now you're thinking about tomorrow morning and the challenges the new week is going to bring. Maybe you're starting to wonder, oh, no, how am I going to manage? How am I going to cope? Well, what happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? How will I get through? Perhaps there are particular uncertainties or worries on our minds at the moment. What happens if I... I lose my job in the recession? What happens if I'm still down the line on my own? What happens if the biopsy comes back and it's positive or the sickness isn't minor? Here, God promises to provide for us, to give us what we need uh, for each day. His grace, he gives for today and he assures us that there will be enough for today. He doesn't often give us advances, not, not, not to deprive us, but to teach us uh, to stretch our faith, to keep trusting God who will meet our needs uh, one day at a time and each step of the way. Now we don't always know, do we, why God allows difficult things to happen, especially in the specifics, but we do know that God uses them, doesn't he, to test and to, to train us in our faith. Sometimes he might even withhold things that we come to depend on so that we might depend on him and trust him and to do that one day at a time. Of course, one of the great ways that we grow in trust is to remember how faithfully he has already provided in the past. And that takes us to our final heading, a need to remember God's uh, great provision. Look down at verse 32. Moses says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness and where I I brought you out of Egypt. Well, the day would come, as God promised, his word promised, uh, these people would finally arrive in the land God had promised. And even as they arrive in that place of great abundance, a land flowing with abundance with milk and honey, God wants them not to forget his provision for them in those 40 years of wandering. Uh, He wants future generations to keep trusting God day by day. And as we close, we need to remember the ways that God has provided for us. To remember past uh, kindnesses and provision, not least because it will help us keep trusting God in the present and for us, there's one example of past provision that we are especially to remember. And of course, that is the provision of our Savior, Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words as he re- miraculously gives hungry people bread in a desert place. And that astonishing miracle we know as the feeding of the 5,000. These are words from John chapter 6. Very truly, I tell you, says Jesus, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world." See what Jesus is saying? Uh, The manna was great, wasn't it, in the wilderness. Uh, It was that miraculous food that God provided. Uh, The feeding of the 5,000 was wonderful. It was provision, uh, two uh, fish, five loaves, 5,000 fed. But it was a stopgap filler. Those people got hungry again. On both occasions, the desert and through Jesus, people were fed. Uh, but that food could only sustain him in the present, not for life, and not for eternal life. But the Bible tells us that we have a need. We were made for life, life that lasts, eternal life. And here in John 6, Jesus says He's come to provide that life for us. Indeed, through offering us His His body, uh, broken on the cross, He can provide us with that forgiveness that wonderful gift of eternal life, life with God that begins now and finds its great fulfillment beyond this life in God's new creation. And so if we will simply trust what Jesus has provided, if we receive it with open, empty hands, then miraculously sinful, ungrateful, grumbling rebels become part of God's family, indeed heirs of all of God's great promises and blessings we're going to remember that aren't we now as we take bread as we drink wine but here's the amazing thing i think when we receive that gift as we remember that gift paid with such enormous cost well can't we be a hundred percent sure even this week that god will continue to meet all our needs through jesus so paul can tell the philippian christians and my god will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in christ jesus to our Christians in Rome, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously provide us with all things? How good this evening to be reminded of God's great provision, that gift that will satisfy us now and indeed for all eternity as we take bread, as we eat, That gift that feeds our faith and even turns grumblers into grateful and confident disciples. Well, whatever this week holds, we can, can't we, trust God's provision. We indeed know that we are in safe hands. The hands of a God who will provide faithfully for us. So let's be assured, even as we eat and as we drink now, let's pray. Father, as we remember what we've been saved from and indeed saved for, even in the simple act of eating, of remembering, please please turn us from grumbling people to grateful people who trust you and trust your provision. Thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. Thank you that through his death, and as we remember it now, we can be confident that you will continue to provide all things that we need until we finally reach home. Encourage us and strengthen our faith. May that faith be marked by obedience and trust. In Jesus' name, amen.